I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When it comes to medical treatment, a big point of worry is cost. Let's face it, medical care is expensive and some folks are faced with the decision of getting treatment or paying rent. For people living with chronic illnesses or a disability and their caregivers, that squeeze feels even tighter. For folks who live far away from urban centers, the costs can be even higher. Later this hour, we'll talk with people and their caregivers about the struggles they face and learn how they're getting the medical care they need. But first, it's almost back to school time in Tennessee. I know all the kids are happy to hear that. And some of last year's third graders will be repeating the third grade after a new law took effect. WPLN's education reporter Alexis Marshall has been following this issue closely and recently took a deep dive into the history of the test. Welcome back to the show, Alexis. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Really great to have you. So, you know, just to refresh our memories, can you briefly describe what this law does? Yeah, so starting this year, at the end of third grade, kids take a test. It's called the Tennessee Comprehensive Assessment Program, or TCAP for short. And students who score proficient or above can automatically move on to fourth grade. Kids who score less than proficient are at risk of being held back. To move forward, they can either retake the test and score higher, they can appeal the decision, or participate in learning interventions like tutoring, summer camp, or both if they scored in the lowest category. Otherwise, they may need to repeat third grade. There are some exceptions, like for kids with disabilities that affect their ability to read, or certain English language learners, or kids who have already been held back in a previous grade. But really, this law is pretty far-reaching since about 60% of third graders this year scored less than proficient. All right. Thank you for getting us up to speed with laying out the land. Okay, so your reporting dove into the history of this test and found that back in 2007, a vast majority of Tennessee students were testing proficient on this test. So let me ask you, what happened? Yeah, so back then, Tennessee had different academic standards and lower standards on this end-of-year test. But then the state got called out in this report from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce at the time, and it received an F for truth in advertising about student proficiency. And that's because even though 90% of kids were testing proficient on the state test, only 20 to 30% were testing proficient on this national test that's known as the nation's report card. That's a really, really big disparity. Okay, so how did the state react to that? So pretty quickly, they started working on raising those standards um, and revamping the TCAP test. Um, at first, Tennessee adopted Common Core. Then after that program became part of this kind of political controversy, the state ended up creating its own set of state standards that are still fairly similar, um, especially in their, rigor, in their rigor. Um but, but definitely upping the standards after that. And that also meant changing the test. So I talked to former education commissioner Candace McQueen, who oversaw the changes to TCAP in 2017 when the current standards were put into place. 
students need in Tennessee need to be able to move seamlessly into whatever next step they want to take, whether that's going to a technical school and becoming a mechanic, which is a job that requires high level reading skills and technical math. Uh, we want students to be able to do that. We want them to be able to go into a four year institution and receive a degree and then go on to graduate school or go straight to the workplace, depending on on what they want to do. So she said that they tried to align Tennessee's bar for proficiency, similar to where it is on that nation's report card test. Um, And that means making sure that kids are on track for success after high school graduation, like being able to go to college and earn B's. I understand the importance of standardized tests. But for me, as a teacher and as a student, they've always been a bit of a pain. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. so, you know, your reporting It also looked at what the TCAT test actually measures. Some critics of the law have pointed out what that, you know, it's not just a simple reading test, even though that's what lawmakers have been focused on when they talk about it. Can you explain what's on the test? Yeah, so the exam does have passages um, that test that students can read and answer questions about the content, um, like that reading comprehension. But it also tests other skills that fall under this bigger umbrella of English language arts, and that includes stuff like punctuation, capitalization, grammar, syntax, some of these other like higher level skills or more detailed. All right. So what's what's the difference between those? And also, why does it matter? Yeah, I talked to Vanderbilt literacy expert Amanda Goodwin about this, and she says that those skills are more like the building blocks of language, um, but that they're also not as implicit so if you think about it, you as a third grader may be able to like read a passage and understand that passage, but you may not be able to explain how or why or deduce the meaning of a particular like unfamiliar word. And that's some of the things that they're testing on TCAP um, that are part of those higher order of thinking standards and questions. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. You're all good. Yeah, okay. No, so, that was it. <laughs> you know, school, you know, school's starting back here pretty soon. Do we have any sense of how many kids are going to be held back? So we don't have state numbers on this yet, and that will likely take some time for them to gather the data, especially from all of these school districts all over Tennessee that also have different start dates. Um, but we do have some fresh numbers from Metro Nashville Public Schools. Um, this week at their board meeting, we learned that the vast majority, 98% of last year's third graders, are going to move on to fourth grade. Um, about one in five of them, though, will be required to participate in tutoring for the entirety of this next school year. Um, that's more than a thousand students not including kids from other grade levels that might also seek out tutoring. Um, And that actually prompted board member Christian Bugs to highlight the need for more volunteer tutors. I don't think we really understand how many thousands of students that ends up being and how many at least hundreds of of tutors we need. So I would appreciate anyone that can hear this to just kind of share that message. And if you know some teacher prep students, retirees, just anyone in the community that is open to offering that, it's about 30 minutes uh, a day, three three days a week. But it it really is an investment in our students that they need. Yeah, and tutors can also meet with students twice a week for 45 minutes at a time, virtually or in person. There's also training. There's more information about becoming a volunteer tutor um, on MNPS's website. 
Uh, and it seems like that's something that they're really going to need since so many students will require tutoring. Nope. Um, now, at least 77 students in Metro will be repeating third grade, and that number will likely grow a little bit since we're still waiting on numbers from charter schools across the district. Okay, Metro schools start up in a couple of weeks. Alexis, let me ask you, when I was young, decades ago in school, school didn't start until September. What about you? I've been born and raised in Tennessee, and I do remember school usually starting in early August. That has always been my experience, at least. Wow, it's crazy. Alexis Marshall is WPLN's education reporter. You can find the link to her stories on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Alexis, thanks for coming in, and thank you for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with people living with dis- disabilities about and their caregivers about the financial costs they face and the challenges they face in paying the bills. Are you living with disabilities? Are you a caregiver? How hard is it for you to meet your medical costs? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. For people who live with disabilities or chronic illness, the freedom of choice many of us enjoy is extremely limited. For one, they have medical challenges, which makes daily life difficult for them and their caregivers. Two, the costs of getting the medical care they need are not only high, but sometimes much higher than for those without disabilities. All of this puts a strain on everyone involved and sometimes can make for tough decisions about whether to pay the medical bills or pay the rent. What's it like to live with these kinds of challenges? My next guests are here to give us some insight. Mackenzie Tuxen has Rett syndrome and is a student at Wikes Creek High. She's joined by her mother, special education and IEP consultant Tamara Tuxen. And Ashton McGrady is a disabled social media influencer. I want to thank you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Note for listeners, Mackenzie uses a device called the Toby Dynavox to communicate. So Mackenzie, tell me, how are you today? I am doing great. Thank you for asking. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Hello, my name is Mackenzie Tuxen. I am a fashion-forward graduated senior at White's Creek High School. My name is Mackenzie Tuxen Wynn. I am the Wesley Mortgage, Tennessee Titans community hero, a sixth-year varsity cheerleader, member of the Lady Cobra softball team, president of my junior and senior class, Wesley Rice Advocate of the Year for the State of Tennessee, public speaker, and a student ambassador for the National Public School System. And I'm currently employed at Bubble Love Team. You do all—how do you have time to do all of that stuff? I will let my mom answer that question. She calls me her assistant. Okay. So I keep up with her schedule and, I, and drive her around and take her places. So that's how she's able to keep up with it. It's always good to have a professional assistant. Exactly. So has she always been this active? Yes. She cheered for the City League, uh, UNA, and then she cheered for middle school. And then when we got to, um, when we got to high school, we just decided that we wanted to 
um, run for office like everyone else. And we wanted to be an she wanted to be an ambassador. So I ran her campaign for her, and then she had to prove that she was uh, able to become an ambassador, that she deserved to be one. And and so she's an ambassador. She graduated seventh in her class. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the first uh, nonverbal ambassador for Metro Nashville Public Schools. She also was president of her junior and senior class. So um, she's and she's a public speaker. She does quite a few. She's a self-advocate. Look, from one senior class president to another, I like your style, Mackenzie. <laughs> I like your style. Now, Ashton, can can you tell us about the disability that you're living with? Yeah, so um, I have a couple conditions, actually, and they're primarily genetic. Uh, one of the conditions I have is called Gittleman Syndrome. Um, it is rare enough to where it is 1 in 40,000 are affected by the condition. Um, and so even my doctors, some of them have never heard of it. Um very humbling experience to have your doctors Google your condition in front of you. Um, I have another condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, It is a connective tissue disorder, also genetic, um, and less rare, but still still not super common. Um, And it causes um, issues like frequent dislocations, um, frequent injuries, et cetera. So uh, I use a wheelchair part-time. Um, I also have a service dog. Uh, he's not here today because he had a little bit of an upset tummy. But, um, yeah, so uh, that's that's the primary. That's There's other comorbid conditions, but that's primarily what I'm dealing with. T- tell me, what is a typical day like for you? Um, so right now it's been a little tough. I had neurosurgery two years ago, uh, on my spinal cord and that has really kind of impacted, um, my mobility in terms of it is increasing, which is great. Um, but I am an influencer. So, uh, my schedule thankfully is very built around how I am feeling. That wasn't always the case. Mm. Um, when I was in the workforce, finding a job that was able and willing to accommodate me um, to the extent that I can do while working for myself was impossible. Um, so I, I do wake up and, you ooh, know, ooh. I do a lot of editing, filming throughout the day. Um, but my day to day can be very different. Again, though, I do have flexibility based on how I'm feeling. So that's. That's great. You, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, you did. We're, we're talking. You know, you, you were talking about being a social media influencer. How do you use your social media platform? So when I started out, um, it was primarily talking. It was mostly for myself. Um, and it was really to document uh, the progress with my service dog. Um, for those who aren't aware in the United States, uh, you are able to self-train your service dog. Um, so, and most of his training, we, we did work with a professional, but most of it was done by me. Um, so I wanted to document that in the beginning. And then eventually I became more comfortable with showing my face on, uh, online, um, and sharing with others. And I started to build a platform initially, um, mostly so I could impact change in regards, um, to disability. So I do, I am a plus size fashion and lifestyle influencer, but I do all of that through the lens of being disabled. So we talk a lot about um, disability, disability advocacy, um, and like disabled travel um, and accessibility in different like experiences around Nashville and beyond. So that's kind of what we're doing. Have folks been responding positively to your work? Yes. (laughs) Um, I do find that a lot of my content is... Um, from what I've received back is very relatable uh, for a lot of folks. And I think 
I think that's been great. It's also opened doors in terms of, I mean, even being here today, it's open terms, open doors so that I can share more about um, being disabled and living with a disability as an adult and what that kind of looks like. Um, so it's been really positive. Thank you for that. Now, Tamara, you are Mackenzie's personal assistant, a.k.a primary caregiver and mom <laughs> and mom that's a lot of hats a mom <laughs> what's that been like for you it's been rewarding it's been very rewarding um i'm always the person that looks at the glass glass half full so that's the attitude that i've kind of brought her up with and i feel like we have we have an opportunity to be a role model for people and so um we've had our good times and we've had our bad times but i can actually say the good times definitely outweigh the bad times she's my partner yeah. Mackenzie, tell me about your relationship with your mom. My mother has been my rock. She is my driver, cheer assistant, job coach, business partner, and my biggest fan. She is the reason I am a strong advocate. My mom has been there for me through the best and the worst times of my life. She makes my life complete. My mother is a fierce advocate and human being. She gives me strength and confidence. That is beautiful. You mentioned that your mom is your job coach. I understand that you have a job. Can you tell me about that? I work at Bubble Love Tea in the farmer's market. My job duties are greeting the customers when they arrive. I will share with you my work page. Love. Welcome to Bubble Love. Welcome to Bubble Love. How may we help you? I love that. And I actually love Bubble Love. Next time I see you there and when I go and see you, you're going to get a big <laughs> tip from me. Now, Mackenzie, she uses the Toby Dynavox machine to communicate. And it's really, really cool. But I imagine that cannot be cheap. Tamara, how much does something like that cost? It's almost like $30,000. And insurance pays for it. But... Um, the thing about that is that Mackenzie's been going to therapy, speech, occupational, physical therapy for the last 12 years. You have to go to an outside therapist to receive this, this, this device. It's not something that the school therapist can write a script for. So that's a sacrifice for some parents to take that child to the, to the therapy during the week to be able to receive this fight because they have to write an evaluation. Then the evaluation has to be sent over to the pediatrician. The pediatrician writes a script for it. It's a medical necessity. Mm -hmm. And then they send it over to insurance to be improved, that's to be a, approved. That's a lot of steps. It is. For an operation like that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about the costs of care for people living with disabilities and chronic conditions. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, we got a message at This Is Nashville from Tyler Samuel, who lives with several disabilities. She's been living independently, that, but that you know means that shouldering the financial burden that her family used previously they took on. Now, these medications she needs can sometimes set her back hundreds of dollars. Let's listen to what she said. Yeah, medications I've had to deal with have changed the formularies in the past and have been upwards of $600 at cost. Um, it's really frustrating because pharmaceutical companies can just do it whenever they want to and change the prices whenever they want to, and it leaves you um, in a place where either you have to find the money or find a different medication. If you can't find a different medication, you have to go without that medication. Um, so it's really, 
it's really hard when some pharmaceutical companies choose to, to change the formulary, and which then changes the price of the medication. Now, to Tyler's point, UT Knoxville researcher Stephen McGarity and team found that on average, it costs 28 percent more for an adult with a disability to maintain the same lifestyle as an adult without one. And in Tennessee, they estimated that that cost can be to get this 51 percent more. Ashton, do you does that feel like it rings true to you? Oh, it definitely does. I was like, 28 percent might be might not be completely accurate. It it definitely does. We've had some substantial costs um, just between medical equipment, doctor's appointments, health insurance. Um, my wife recently was laid off uh, with the current economy, and we've had a that's the second time in the last three years that's taken place. So affording Cobra um, mm. is is as much as quite literally as much as our rent payment. So you're you're married. Your wife was laid off. Mm-hmm. It all comes down to your income as an influencer. How does that help? It is very inconsistent. <laughs> um, and I have found with the downturn in the economy, a lot of brands are also not wanting to compensate. Um, they're primarily wanting to work on a gifted basis. And unfortunately, a gift, while products are great, they don't pay my bills. Um, so I'm still very small. I'm considered a micro-influencer. Um, my platform is radiantly golden on both Instagram and TikTok. And while I've amassed a small following, um, it's still the the work is not consistent enough to to afford all of our bills. So we're we're making ends meet barely. Mm. You know, I'm really curious about the financial decisions that you have to make just to end make ends meet. Tamara, what have you had to do in that regard? Well, I don't um, I didn't work because Mackenzie would go to therapy three times a day if she cheered. Um, on the cheerleading squad, and that's important. It needed to her for her to be social. I drive her back and forth to school. I take her to her doctor's appointment. But the biggest thing is that if school is out, like during COVID, there's no respite for a grown person. There is no daycare that you can take them to. That's your sole responsibility as a parent to care for them. So that um, uh, this year I started in May, I started a business. It's called Mission to Advocate because other times McKenzie and I were just volunteering to go to places and advocate for the, for the people that have helped services that have helped us. So by her, last, next year's her last victory lap. Ooh. That's what I call it. So she'll be 21 and there will be no more school. And I need her to still be social and I still need her to be a, a, bit, a part of society. And so we started the business so that now we can advocate to go together. We can still go together and advocate for other individuals. But that just started in May. And the financial part of it is, is, is really, it's hard. You were talking about the pandemic and that experience. How hard was that for you? Very hard. One, Mackenzie's social. So she's asking me what's going on. Two, you couldn't be around anybody, not family, friends, or anyone. So that was a tough time. That led that left the caregiver the sole responsibility of entertaining, exercise, everything, cooking, everything. It left them solely responsible for that. And then they were dealing, we were dealing with it too, the shock of the COVID. So, you know, it's important to have these advocates in what you're doing now with your daughter creating this business. Now, Mackenzie, you said in your wonderful, very detailed and robust resume that you gave us at the top of the clip that you're an advocate. Tell me, in your advocacy work, what's the number one thing that you would like to see change here in Nashville? I will let my mom answer that question. I will let my mom answer that question. The main thing that she wanted to have changed, and I'm going to tell you all something, she put some thought into this. She belongs to people first. 
She had a meeting with them this morning, and she asked their opinion. She just didn't want to come with her opinion, but she asked their opinion. And the one thing that they wanted to see change was the providers and companies to accept the insurance that, that we have, that they have, and also housing to be more affordable because that is a big problem. It's not a lot of affordable housing in Nashville, but definitely the providers, because there are some providers that won't take the state insurance. Mm. And some companies won't for the uh, for wheelchairs or other, other equipment that they might need. Ashton, have you run into that? So I was going to say uh, one of the major things, I mean, as I spoke about before, we've had inconsistent access to health care. Um, it is great because Nashville is, is this, you know, center for healthcare, which is fantastic. We do have so many providers, but we have run into some situations where um, our insurance hasn't been accepted, um, various places. And then you're back scrambling again to find a new provider and you might have to wait nine, 12 months to go see that provider, which is also another issue. Specialist wait lists are, are crazy, especially with the number of people moving here to Nashville. It's got to be incredibly frustrating for you, but your wife as well, right? Yes. Um, it's been it's been really difficult. Um, it is a lot of burden that she should not have to bear. Um, but she does feel a lot of pressure because of the way that um, government resources are set up. SSI, um, her previously, until she was laid off three weeks ago especially, um, disability is not available to those who are above the income threshold, comma. However, uh, the income threshold is so low. They, the expectation is that you must be in poverty and then you must remain in poverty mm. um, re regardless. So it's it's been tough. Um, and I personally, uh, SSDI, on the other hand, you have to have an, a certain number of work credits for um, which I was disabled at a young age um, and because of f different family issues, did not have accesses, access to resources at a young age. Um, and then I was not set up for them as an adult either. You know, the, to me, this reads as a systemic problem. Let me ask you, what changes would you like to see to our healthcare system? As a whole, um, I think one of the, the main issues that um, I see is that there is not enough access to um, adequate health insurance, um, especially at an affordable cost. Um, I think that's a huge issue um, because even when you're talking about the Affordable Care Act, many of those plans are not providing enough insurance, enough coverage to be able to afford uh, things that might be considered, you know, above and beyond like a custom wheelchair, my custom wheelchair uh, without insurance is around twenty six thousand um, wow. dollars, which is crazy to think about. But I think that's that's the biggest thing. You mentioned affordability. That Tamara, you talked about it as one of Mackenzie's goals of the cost of living of Nashville. Do you all really, Ashton? Let me ask you. Do you have super concerns about that as yeah. Nashville becomes more expensive? People who have who are living with disabilities and or have chronic illness just won't be able to afford it. It seems like it's another set of people who won't be able to afford to live in Nashville. For sure. I think for even folks who aren't living um, with chronic illnesses or with disabilities, it is really challenging to live in Nashville right now. Um, I think especially with, again, the, the way the economy is shaping 
currently it's especially hard, but then you add in the the burden of the cost of living with disability and um, the rising housing costs. And it, it's just it's caused a lack of access to it's caused food insecurity, housing insecurity for some folks. And that's the very sad reality. You know, Tamara, you know, Mackenzie's going to be finishing up school next yes. year. Like he said, when you think about her future and what it looks like as an adult, what comes to your mind? Well, we got a head start and started working at Bubba Love. They were gracious enough to, you know, allow, give McKenzie an opportunity to work there. But I'm her job coach. They're, they're, it's hard to find someone because it is so expensive to live in Nashville that can afford to be somebody's job coach and still live here. So I, I took it upon myself to do it because I want her to be employed. But there are some parents that, that, that are not that are not able to do that. So that leaves that individual without even being able to work mm. or to live on their own because it's so expensive. Mackenzie, let me ask you, do you want to live on your own one day? Do you want to live on your own one day? Yes. Potentially, hopefully you can. Do you, let me ask you another question, Mackenzie. Do you feel like, do you feel like Nashville, this city that we live in, do you feel like it's a good place for someone with autism and or other disabilities? I will let my mom answer that question. Yes, she did say, and we talked with the people first so we could get some other people's perspective. Uh, there were four things that we talked about. One was that the transportation has gotten so much better with the WeGo system. They were very proud of that. Two, the adult changing tables was positive for Nashville. And three, I will say to allow adults to have dental insurance. Through that has been one of the best things that has happened, not only for for the uh, individual, but for the caregiver to be able to go to the dentist to care for them. So I, and I believe they do listen. I do. I believe that you have to advocate for it, but I, I believe that the state does listen. Now, Ashton, what do you want to leave our listeners with? I think I think just understanding, again, kind of what I was talking about, it's, it's not just financial um, in terms of the burden of living with disability. It's it's social. It is it is emotional. And that's not just for the disabled person. That's for their caregiver as well. Um, my wife this year for the first time, she's a very mentally well, very healthy uh, human, but she had to seek therapy for a little bit just to deal with some of the burnout that she was experiencing from being a caregiver. That's very real. Um, so it, it's all around. It is burden and in, in every aspect that's very difficult. But the only way we can get away from that is with that systemic change. That's what it all boils down to. I want to thank my guests, social media influencer Ashton McGrady and Mackenzie Tuxen, student and advocate for people living with disabilities. Really appreciate you both for coming on to the show. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Tamara Tuxen will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn about the invisible costs of living with a disability and what can be done to help. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. 
We're discussing, we're discussing the costs of care for people living with chronic illness or disabilities and their caregivers. Before the break, we heard about the lives of two Tennesseans and how they sometimes have to make tough financial decisions about whether to get treatment or pay the bills. That's a rough decision to make. But there are some other consequences beyond money. What are known as the invisible costs of life with a disability. Those include stress. My next guests are here to talk about those invisible costs and how the government can provide help. Jackie Cancer is a disability policy advocate, and Lauren Piercy is the executive director on the Tennessee Council of Developmental Disabilities. Jackie, Lauren, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. It's so Thank good to be here. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. Now, we got this message from Lisa Hammett, who's a friend of the show. She's a full-time caregiver to for her daughter, Grace, who has autism, intellectual disabilities, and severe language impairment. Lisa's been her caregiver for almost 30 years and still faces roadblocks. She'll never be able to live completely independent. It, it comes at a tremendous cost to me as a caregiver and other caregivers like me. Um, Time, energy, mental health, uh, frustration, struggle um, when contractors don't get it right or TenCare doesn't get it right, um, lost wages, lost retirement earnings. It was built on a very flawed system. Uh, there is a national crisis for caregivers, a shortage of caregivers. They're usually inadequately paid. I am privileged to... Uh, by race, by education, and by skill sets. And not everyone has these abilities to manage such a complex system. And she's definitely not the only one feeling just how complex this system is. But Lauren, you know, what's your reaction to what we just heard from Lisa? Yeah, it's very real. And we know from prevalence data that 2.3% of the population have the most significant lifelong disabilities that we're talking about today. That translates to about 160,000 Tennesseans, and a fraction of those actually have access to paid care in our public system. Even when you do, like Lisa's daughter, the caregiver, and like Mackenzie, I'm looking at Tamara, um, who you just heard from, both of those families have access to our public system, and the caregivers and their families are still having a full-time job navigating the service system. But there are the vast majority of people don't have access to our public service system. There are wait lists. There are other barriers. And so their families are absorbing that cost completely. Now, what happens at the Tennessee Council on Developmental Disabilities? How do you all advocate for the people you work with? Well, we I describe us as a bridge between citizens and government. So we exist in state government. Some of our council members are appointed as representatives of state government. So they represent agencies like TenCare, special education, um, a handful of others that are key to the service system. But then we have 21 members who are appointed because they are citizens with lived experience. And we are the place where they come together and the system hears what the barriers are straight from people who with lived experience. And then we staff are very small. We're one of the smallest agencies in state government. We have nine staff total. Wow. But we do a lot of translating between those two groups. You know, I'm wondering how, how effective is the bridge if costs for people living with disabilities can be as much as 51% higher than for adults without them? Yeah, it's really hard because as everyone has alluded to, all your panelists and Lisa and Tyler, your callers, 
there is a huge cost just to navigating the system, just to understanding what is available before you even access it. And then once you access it, navigating the issues when they arise, escalating them, seeing them to resolution is a huge mental and um, a stressor. And so there's a lot of cost that are invisible, as you said in the intro, and and then add the real costs. And we have people trapped in poverty. Now, Jackie, not only are you an advocate, but your daughter has a rare genetic condition called SYNGAP1. Can you can you tell me about your daughter? Yes, my daughter is 20 years old. She's one of 1,238 people we know in the world who have her condition. And it is an extremely significant condition. Um, Thomas Frazier did a neurobehavioral study earlier this year in April that he published testing against other neurodevelopmental genetic conditions, neurodevelopmental disorders, autism spectrum disorders, neuropsychiatric disorders, intellectual disability, as well as neurotypical controls. And overwhelmingly, SYNGAP1, even compared to all of these other very debilitating conditions, scored extremely high, highest on challenging behaviors, restrictive and repetitive behaviors, and as well as the lowest on quality of life. And so I have been raising a child in Tennessee, which does not have currently systems of support really set up for this level of care um, with a daughter with SYNGAP1. You know, what's it been like trying to get services? Well, I am uh, quite a vocal advocate regarding the fact that ECF doesn't work for us. And that is our current uh, distribution of the HCBS waiver. In 2016, Tennessee closed down what was formerly the 1915C waiver and transitioned into ECF. ECF works for a lot of people, um, but those like my daughter do not have access to appropriate supports because she does have severe behaviors. Now, severe behaviors don't define my daughter by any means. She is super sweet and compassionate and funny and loves to dance and sing, but severe behaviors are a symptom of her disability and no different than her seizures are a symptom of her disability. And so for me, trying to navigate ECF, even though she's on it and approved, we can never find providers because they're allowed to kind of cherry pick their clients. And if somebody has severe behaviors, they just will not service them, which to me is really a form of discrimination. Um, so I had to go through years of crisis, really severe, uh, indescribable crisis with her without any options of support and learn to navigate this on my own. And I've done so, and we're in a really good place. Um, I live now out in a homestead environment with her and she's, she's doing really well. But uh, through that process, I was able to learn what gaps existed within our system and start developing ideas for solutions 
to fill those gaps so that other families that come behind me don't have to live the nightmare that we did. All right. Parent and caregiver Tamara Tuxin is still with us. You know, as Jackie was sharing, particularly the point where she said that providers can cherry pick who they work with, you know, you and Lauren were shaking your heads in agreement. Is that something that happens? Yes. Um, I'll give you an example. <laughs> what amazed me is we could go to Vanderbilt for years when she was a, when she was, a, when, before she turned 18. So they have all her records. She turns 18 and she's not able to go anymore. But these are the doctors that we've built relationships with. They know her. They diagnosed her. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And and when turn 18, then we have to have a set of new doctors at another hospital that will take her and have to get to know her. And some might take the insurance and some might not. So she's exact. She's she's correct. So with a procedural note of that that you just mentioned, would you say that we are in a little bit of a caregiver shortage? Oh, most definitely. My, that's why I am her full-time caregiver. She calls me her assistant because it's hard to find someone. I spoke about that earlier. They can't afford to live in Nashville and then be paid the salary, like Lisa said, that we give them and make make it. It's just, it just doesn't work like that. You know, Lauren, what can the state do to create positions and provide more caregivers for families that are in need? Yeah, I, there's a lot going on at the state level trying to figure this out. In fact, at the national level. And I think if there were any easy answers, it would be solved. But one thing that keeps coming up as I talk to families is we have to support the families better with financial assistance, with flexible stipends. There are a few programs in Tennessee that do that. But the reality is that if we only look to our public system, publicly funded system, then we don't have the workforce there. And so supporting caregivers so that they can step away from the workforce um, has to be part of the solution. Now, Jackie, you're the full-time caregiver for your daughter. Tell me about how this has impacted your family, the emotional, physical, and social costs of that. There's not a way for me to exaggerate the devastation in all levels um, to my family. You know, and, and during this process, while she was in crisis, I also had a brain tumor. And I had five or six different surgeries across two different states. Um, my my mother had to fly in unpaid leave to help try to provide care because the state doesn't have a solution for what do you do when the caregiver is incapacitated boop, with this boop. level of care. And so, you know, I'm divorced now. Um, my husband just couldn't take it. He showed up with a moving truck one morning and said he was exiting the marriage. I had no idea. Um, mm. You know, so we're isolated. I have my groceries delivered, those kinds of things. But um, through the homestead that I'm developing for Jaden, the goal is to help get her out into the community more through farmers markets, developing our own farm stand and things like that. But, you know, I really do hope that Legislators are listening, that the governor, the um, commissioner are listening and are able to sit down and talk about this because I have several solutions that could help us really start filling these gaps and getting these families the support that they need. You know, I really like to hear about some of those solutions, but all three of you are advocates. Let me ask you, what misunderstandings do you find that people have? What are folks missing when we're talking about 
people with chronic illness and disabilities and the caregivers who help them on a daily basis. Lauren, start with you. Yeah, I think there's something that's often overlooked, which is the problem of communication. So the the state system is so complex, and it's often written in a way that is intended for an audience of professionals and lawyers. So explaining the system takes a whole army of advocates just to translate. Here's what you qualify for. Here's what this means. Here's how you apply for this, and here's what you do next, and here's how you um, escalate issues. I think that we could provide a more effective system simply by simplifying and, and paying more attention to messaging and plain language from the system to the end user and, um, and really taking out so much stress of just navigating, what do I qualify for? How do I find out how to do it? And how do, who do I talk to when there are problems? That is something we spend a ton of energy doing. And I think we'd have a more effective system if we could um, do a better job of that. Tamara, what are people not getting? I think they don't get that everybody's situation is different. And my situation is different than Lisa's. My situation is different than the lady that was talking on there. On there, So everybody has a different area. But one thing we all have in common is taking care of that individual, that loved one that we care about, and what we sacrifice. No Social Security in the long run, uh, the loneliness part of it. Uh, maybe you get sick yourself. I've already planned my funeral arrangements. So that will not be a burden on anyone that cares for my daughter when I pass. And also, who's going to care for her when I'm gone? So we as caregivers could use that extra income at this time. Because like I said, I don't get a paid, I did not get a paid a dime to be McKenzie's job coach, but wanted her to have a job. It wasn't until after a year that Bubba Love said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you. I, I, we've tried to find a coach. We can't find one. I'm going to pay you. Because you are you are here working with Mackenzie, but I wanted Mackenzie to have a job, and so so many times we as parents want to be well, our our children, our loved ones with a disability, to be able to participate in different things. But we're the only person, so we're with them at home, and then you have to be with them in the social aspect of it too, and that's a lot. Mm. And 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 a lot of parents have to work because they have other individual, other children to take care of too. Now, now, Jackie, you mentioned that you have some solutions, but let me ask you this because. You know, Mackenzie's got this job at Bubble Up, Bubble Love. Do you think that more people in the private industry, private businesses, do you think that they could be made of service to help? Not, not in Jaden's case, because um, you know there's the issue of severe behaviors. There's a, there is a very low bar with an ECF benefits called exploration. It's not even job coaching. It's just to see what kind of jobs you might want to have. And even they denied Jaden the opportunity to explore what kind of job she might want to do. They just kind of wrote her off that she wouldn't be, she was too severe of a level of care for them to be able to ride service, which was wrong. I, I mean, I I have videos on our, our blog page showing, you know, Jaden's learning how to bake uh, banana oat bread. She's learning how to collect her own eggs. She's learning skills and she's capable of doing that in the right environment with the right supports. But because we have such a stigma on behaviors as if they're a moral choice, instead of looking at it as a symptom of a disability that's protected under ADA, then she's excluded from really just about everything. Tell me, what do you want folks to know about the caregivers? 
and how we can help them? Well, I had submitted a proposal that draft earlier this year that is based on a family CNA model that several other states are using, like Arizona, California, Colorado, Indiana, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. It's a successful program, and it will be a more robust set of family supports. Um, it can come with a zero fiscal note along with it. And additionally, I think that we really need to develop an additional advisory council on the state policy um, committee that focuses on those with medical complexity and co-occurring severe behaviors because we're kind of in our own little class here and our voices really need to be at the table so we can address these issues. I think we need a new group for ECF that can provide providers who are trained in the types of symptoms that our children have and their needs and an appropriate pay rate or such. And I also am currently researching, looking into developing a proposal so that we can add agricultural programs in for those who are inadequately serviced through ECF because of what's known as the biophilia effect, where nature really just I'm, does. I'm sorry, Jackie, we're just at, we're out of time. We have to end it there. Thank you so much for being on the show. I want to thank all of the guests, disability policy advocate Jackie Cancer, Lauren Piercy with the Tennessee Council of Developmental Disabilities and special education advocate Tamara Tuxen. Thank you all again for being with us. Really appreciate it. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Lisa Hammett, Tom Jedlowski, and Zoe Jamail. And Caitlin Smith, Kathleen Smith, pardon me. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts and the conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>